For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. The Chancellor for Higher Education announces his retirement after 12 years on the job. Glenn Johnson says he'll be leaving the office at the end of next year. The move comes after considerable pressure from Governor Stitt to have him replace. Ryan, what do you think of this decision? I mean, you know, first, I think we should celebrate the career of Glenn Johnson, Chancellor Johnson. It's not over yet, but let's celebrate. I mean, he was Speaker of the House in the Oklahoma legislature in his mid-30s. At the time, he was the youngest Speaker of the House of any state legislature, state legislature in the country. He was recently recognized as the top chancellor of all of the systems of higher education around the nation. Here's somebody who is uh, a quintessential public servant in the state of Oklahoma. And the uh, most people won't ever really realize the benefit of his public service, but his public service uh, reaches far and wide around Oklahoma. And I can just say personally, uh, his mentorship and friendship over the years, especially when I was in the legislature, uh, I'm incredibly grateful for that. You know, the dynamics of him leaving, of course, you know, he's saying that he left of his own accord. And I think that that's right. I think, though, that he recognized that his relationship with the governor was such that if the the system of higher education in the state of Oklahoma were going to have a good advocate, that he needed to clear the path for that to happen. And I think that that's going to happen in 2020. Neva. Well, I think while the governor had made it clear, he thought it was time for a change, a new face, uh, uh, a new quarterback, as he called it, at the uh, at the helm at the uh, higher in higher education, I think what he saw was the pushback. I mean, almost from the moment that he yeah. kind of sent that volley across, it was clear from the chairman of the board of higher regents to many other folks. You heard everyone kind of coming uh, coming forward saying this guy's doing a good job. You didn't hear any detractors. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. This was kind of a wide open opportunity for those folks uh, who wanted to be the critics of higher ed or in particular the chancellor to kind of take a shot and you really didn't see that and I think even uh, after uh, this all ensued we saw the governor take a little more conciliatory mm-hmm. uh, uh, response and basically now we have the stage set uh, uh, the, the chancellor has been involved for several years in really um, leading a task force to not only restructure but to modernize uh, uh, the uh, the entire higher ed system something that everyone acknowledges needs to be done so I think this gives time for that to be in place some of the key uh, uh, new hires that they're looking to bring on. It gives an opportunity for uh, a, for all of those uh, parties to be involved uh, within the higher ed system right now, and then begin to have that conversation in a larger way with the legislature and beyond as he looks toward his official retirement sometime later next year. And the governor doesn't have any say in who becomes no, the no, next chancellor. No, but those but, nine, those but nine regents matter? on the higher ed, yeah. I think, can you know, one would anticipate that there's going to be, as they roll off in a systematic fashion their terms that the governor is going to going to put his uh, handpicked uh, folks on there as all governors do I mean that's part of the that's part of the process and one of the things in these key appointments uh, regents at the at the various uh, colleges and universities as well as the higher education regents those are considered very significant appointments by a governor uh, during his term and Eva you said you know no detractors I think that that's really important and it speaks volumes about Glenn Johnson. I mean, here's a guy who 
he was a Democratic member of the of the House. He was a Democratic Speaker of the House, Democratic politician, but came to power uh, as chancellor during a time of Republican ascendancy in the state of Oklahoma. And he did that and managed to transcend partisanship in, in most every fashion. And I think that that's why you saw a lot of pushback. You know, the Governor Stitt calling him John Blake, which, you know, those are fight words in Oklahoma. <laughs> I mean, ne- next step is to talk about somebody's mama. And, you know, so whenever whenever he said that, you get all that pushback. That's really reflective of, of a man who has... Uh, you know, really worked on both sides of the aisle and put higher education above politics. And I think when you saw the Senate Education Committee chair, a Republican, right. Gary Stanislavski, who said that uh, basically here's someone who not only has adapted to the position, but he promotes higher ed without a partisan bent. So those were very significant words coming from uh, someone at the helm on the Senate side uh, chairing the Education Committee and someone who is a Republican. Oklahoma is paying a Michigan law firm to help with negotiations of tribal gaming compacts. Attorney General Mike Hunter announced the company is getting $250,000 for advice and expertise after Governor Stitt spoke on the phone with at least two of its attorneys. Neither the tribes say the compacts are clear and need no interpretation. So why spend the money here? Good question. I think the governor is is still intent on having uh, uh, kind of having the uh, process move forward, having this negotiation take place. And right now it's been stymied by, uh, you know, neither side really being able to come to the table in, in good faith. So uh, by infusing more attorneys into the process and these folks who have a reputation and have a background for being able to deal with complex, uh, compact, and gaming uh, negotiations and issues, maybe that will kind of set the stage where it can be a win-win, and that's really where it has to get to. I mean, largely, you have to have a situation where the governor feels like uh, uh, his takeaway is he gets something he's looking for, the tribes get what they're looking for, but it has to be in an environment where there's enough mutual respect and rapport developed that that they can actually have uh, actually have negotiations that go somewhere and the and the clock is ticking in terms of the t- the timeline uh, with every um, you know with many folks and certainly the the tribal leadership believing that January 1 2020 these compacts automatically renew right well and that's it then and that's the legal question in a nutshell do these compacts automatically renew and if you look at the 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 statutory language that enables the compacts if you look at the compacts themselves that seems to be pretty cut and dry that they automatically renew, you know, barring a handful of conditions uh, that would have to happen in the state of Oklahoma between now and the end of the year. And those don't seem to really, you know, be on the forefront. And so without those conditions, you know, basically the lack of gaming at any of the, the horse racing facilities that, you know, Remington Park would have to basically eliminate gaming uh, would be a huge step towards the uh, elimination or the negation of the automatic renewal. But you can pay a, a law firm in any state you want a quarter of a million dollars and they'll give you an opinion that backs up what you want it to back up, but that doesn't mean it's going to hold any water in court. I think that the automatic renewal thing here is is, cri- is critical to the negotiation process. If the governor would come out and admit, yes, the way that these compacts are written, they're automatically going to renew, and we need to go into the negotiations with good, with good faith, knowing that if we can't reach an agreement, that we're going to stick with the status quo. If he would, I think, come to the table with that admission, the tribes, I think, would in good faith come to the table and talk about you know what the compacts might look like uh, in a different way. And it's not surprising. We're seeing numbers that show that the, the revenue growth has been into record numbers across the U.S. and certainly in the Oklahoma City and Tulsa regions. There's a reason why I think Governor Stitt feels like Oklahoma is losing a little bit of money here. Well, uh, whatever the numbers are, the bottom line is everyone has to get the 
get to the table and negotiate. Right. And and that's where it has to get to and get to quickly. I mean, there are there are issues beyond just the ones that are kind of the the major ones that have been talked about the most, but you talk about a, compla- a compact and all of the complexities that are involved in that. There are a lot of negotiating points I'm sure that maybe uh, not rise to the level of what we're talking about right now in terms of just the overall gaming component. But there, there are issues there that have to uh, have to be addressed, and and some of those, uh, if they're not addressed now, certainly may crop up when the legislature comes back into session. So I think it behooves everyone to move forward quickly. This is something that's kind of been simmering along all through the year, and it's now we're into the fall season, and the clock, uh, as I say, is going to run out uh, if they want to use the football analogy uh, very quickly, and uh, that does not bode well for the people of the state of Oklahoma. I think all parties have to recognize let's do what needs to be done to get this resolved because it's good for all Oklahomans. Yeah right you were talking about when this compact was created 15 years ago this was kind of a risk for the tribes to even it's a huge risk for the tribes and you know so you look at you look at the way that the breakdown in revenue goes to the tribe and you know the governor's office can say well they're getting more than other tribes get in other states uh well the the risk that Oklahoma tribes took on uh, to say we're going to invest in this new type of gaming we're going to try to build these casinos and these entertainment venues and then what they did with that money over the next uh, you know decade plus has been not only to just invest in you know casinos but more often than not investing in healthcare and infrastructure uh, and education I mean the the investment that tribes make in the state of Oklahoma is tremendous and the return that every Oklahoma regardless of whether you're a member of a tribe or not has received the benefits that we've received by tribal growth uh, in, in their investments in our communities. I mean, it's, it's difficult to put a price tag on that. And I, I've seen some numbers that talk about, but it's really just difficult to put a price tag on, on the benefit that we as all Oklahomans experience. The Department of Corrections locks down state prisons after gang-related violence resulting in one death as well as dozens of injured inmates and correctional officers. Ryan, do you think this is just because of overcrowding or is there something else? I mean, I think, it, I mean, it's overcrowding. We've got way too many people in prison. There, our prisons are understaffed. Uh, and even whenever they are staffed, we're talking about, you know, limited programming, uh, limited opportunities for uh, education, for uh, addiction services, uh, for gang intervention. I mean, these are, you know, we're, we're really just warehousing people. It's called the Department of Corrections. And in spite of the just the meritorious work of a lot of men and women over at the Department of Corrections, correctional officers in particular that are on the front lines uh, and, and providing those services, they are just overworked and understaffed and underfunded. And it's not only dangerous for the inmates, but it's dangerous for the correctional workers. You know, there are these restorative justice experts, and they're quick to remind us that the main drivers of crime and violence are isolation, humiliation, shame, desperation, and fear. I mean, we do that when we put people in prison anyways, but when we, when somebody commits, when they commit a crime, they do that anyways. But in these lockdowns, we make it even worse. And so we just end up exacerbating the situation. So we have this criminal justice system that only makes things worse. And so we've looked at a lot of reforms over the last years, but I think that instead of reform, we really need to just entirely rethink the way that we're treating folks. Neva. Well, I think, I mean, in looking at the instance of uh, last weekend, the fact that we had in five facilities 
Uh, we had uh, uh, more than a dozen inmates that uh, were injured. We had one death. Uh, we had m a number of uh, correctional officers also injured, uh, none life-threatening. But uh, the significance of this, I mean, it was it was uh, stated that it was gang-related brawls, and you know the fact that they happened uh, in in a fairly rapid succession all across the state in five different prisons is cause for concern. I mean, it does raise the issue of what's going on from uh, uh, from the standpoint of dealing with this uh, in our in our prison system beyond the issues that we talk about on the criminal justice side and and all of that and when you look at the fact that 50 that uh, as as of the end of July even though the legislature gave a an increase a pay increase that basically brought the correctional officers up to 15 almost $16 an hour pay, it, we still find that they have about 55% of their positions, their entry-level positions, unfilled. So, I mean, it is a problem when you have decaying old facilities with all of these uh, systemic problems that we've talked about over and over and over again. We have no new director at the helm uh, mm -hmm. uh, leading the Department of Corrections. And then we have all of these uh, flare-ups uh, in these in these facilities across the state that, that do give real cause for concern. I mean, not only on the part of the correctional officers and those dealing inside those facilities, but the larger picture of what we do uh, from a state perspective in addressing these issues uh, where we are talking about one of the states with the perennially largest percentage of incarcerated men and women in, in the country. Yeah, it's, regardless of what you pay these people, uh, when you see the headlines of yeah. lockdowns and stuff, it doesn't make you, doesn't matter how much they're gonna pay, you're not gonna wanna go get that job. Absolutely not. And you know, not only are we seeing you know, the, the entry-level correctional workers, uh, correctional officers, uh, you know, not filling those positions. But one of the things we're seeing this week is, you know, news of senior administration shakeup within DOC itself. So we don't have a director. There have been key senior administration officials who have either left or been forced out of the agency. So there's some vacancies in critical areas and, you know, decision-making within the department. Um, yeah, the real news here, and I, I think if, if Joe Albaugh, uh, former director Albaugh were here with us, he, he would agree with me and, you know, call in, you know, pledge first, <laughs> pledge first, uh, but call in and tell me otherwise. But the real news is that this hasn't happened more regularly, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that we haven't seen this kind of violence more regularly. He actually did say that yeah. before he left. Was I mean, he it's surprised right. there's not it, more it was one of his chief concerns. Yeah. It's kind of a miracle. The Pardon and Parole Board is considering steps to possibly accelerate the commutation process. It plans to work with DOC to create a single-stage document of eligible inmates based off the state question 780 retroactive measure passed by lawmakers. Neva, this could impact hundreds of current state prisoners. It could, and I think that what, we've, what, that what we're hearing from the, uh, uh, the head of the Pardon and Parole Board is that they want to have a system that is implemented that's it, with urgency, and I think excellence were the two uh, words that, that were used, but, and also do it maybe a little ahead of schedule. We'll see. I mean, mm -hmm. they're talking about having this first docket ready maybe, is, uh, maybe by October 1st. I think the actual date that they have to uh, uh, comply is uh, uh, the, a month later in November, November 1st, the first but day but uh, but I think I think we have when we start to look at this breakdown I mean how they do these dockets and they're talking about three dockets and the and the and the complexity of all of that they've got an, an incredibly tall order in, in front of them and when you think about the fact that 
as the pardon and parole board, these folks are these folks are uh, people that just come from you know private citizens coming in, giving of their time to something that is a very very difficult task and takes a lot of hours. And so I think you know uh, oftentimes these are the types of uh, individuals across the spectrum in 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 uh, these uh, state boards and commissions that are unheralded. And I think that we need to remember these are folks who have have really stepped up and and given a great deal of time and attention and and understand the seriousness of the roles that they are uh, that they are involved in 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 this particular instance with the pardon and parole board i've heard let's talk about members of pardon and parole board of course they, they don't get paid for this this is a volunteer they get paid like a per diem i think to, to yeah. but but they spend hours and hours it, and hours kind of looking over these papers yeah. as they get ready for the first their their next meeting you know they should we should really have a professional pardon and parole board, you know, no disrespect to our volunteers. Frankly, I mean, if the volunteers, you know, let's start paying them. I mean, you yeah. know, they, we, we really need, you know, that kind of staff over there uh, and, you know, just dedicated uh, folks that are, and we, there is some staff, but the, the people that are really making the decisions, they're volunteers, like you said. So well, we, when you look at the case, caseload increases up by 71%. Right. I mean, that's a staggering number. I mean, it's almost uh, difficult to, uh, to comprehend when you really think about the, the literally hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of cases that, that, uh, that these folks are now uh, really under the gun to try to be able to uh, uh, work through and uh, make decisions on. And kudos to them. I mean, what they're, you know, if you think about what they're trying to do here, these, you have inmates right now that because of retroactive application of state question 780 are no longer required to be in prison. And so if the pardon and parole board drags their feet on this, then we, we have people that are otherwise eligible to be released, you know, sitting in these, what we were talking about earlier, these very dangerous, decrepit, decaying uh, prisons. And so the, you know, every hour that you spend in one of those places that you don't have to is, you know, just hell. And mm-hmm. so the fact that the pardon and parole board is, is working diligently to make sure that they either get out before the deadline or as soon as that deadline hits, you know, hundreds of folks that are eligible get released. Others are going to have their sentences reduced. You know, some are going to have their sentences modified, but, you know, they have other crimes that they're serving. And really what this speaks to me is that, you know, we went through, you know, 2016 was when state question 780 passed. And so it's taken from then to now, you know, three years almost since the passage of uh, state question 780 uh, before we're seeing retroactive application. We should have immediate retroactive application for all criminal justice reform measures. All sentencing reforms should have immediate uh, presumptive retroactive application. You know, and then, you know, if there's some reason why it shouldn't be retroactively applied, you know, let a judge or a district attorney, you know, raise that objection. But everybody uh, moving forward, we should just do that. We shouldn't have a three-year gap in between. How well, and I think, think when you look at these dockets, I mean, the first docket, there are 800, I think, yeah, uh, individuals yeah. on there. Second docket, 600. But then the third docket, that's the most complex of all, I think the number jumps to 2,100 or something. That, so, that, I mean, I think that as we see these folks, you know, kind of work through this process, I mean, we have to remember, I mean, because sometimes I think from the public standpoint, they 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 think, oh my! I mean, how many thousands upon thousands of people are just going to flood out of the out of the system? And we have to keep it in context of what's happening here and why it's happening, just as you uh, just as you explained, Ryan. And you also have to worry about the Willie Horton effect. Is basically you don't want necessarily somebody to get out and then 
cause another but, crime. But let's remember, since Governor Stitt uh, was elected, there there have only, I think the number, the population decrease in DOC is about 1,500 people. So, yeah. I mean, we're not talking that we're just, we've opened the, right. you know, we've opened the doors and they're just flooding out. And I think that is an important distinction and point to be made for the public who always have pause. I mean, that's why that's why we had the, uh, the mindset in the legislature for decades of, you know, lock them up yeah. and throw away the key because we don't, we're not going to be uh, doing anything on our watch to uh, uh, to, to do anything differently. So. Well, and that, that 800 number of folks that you know, may be immediately eligible for release, that number was a lot bigger back in 2016 when State Question 780 passed because you know we have, we've seen a reduction in the number of folks going into right. prison for simple possession. Some have been revoked for charges that were prior to 2016, but the number, overall number has gone down. And a lot of those folks, even if they're going in, uh, or if they were in in 2016, you know, they may have had a two to a five to a you know, six-year sentence. You know, some of that has been uh, earned time. And you know, so a lot of them, even though they would uh, be charged and convicted of a misdemeanor today, their felony just simply, uh, their time that they served, you know, they were out beforehand. So not only are we having hundreds of people that are getting out, there were thousands of people that were once eligible, but just by the virtue of time, they're already out. And speaking of those folks that are already out, we have thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Oklahomans that are going to be eligible to go and have their records uh, reflect a misdemeanor charge and not a felony charge. So even though they're not in prison anymore, they're still going to benefit that's from this jobs, new That's jobs, that's school. There are yep. so many things you cannot do if you've got a felony Housing, record. Yeah. yeah. Finally, we received sad news over the weekend in the death of T. Boone Pickens at the age of 91. America's best-known oil tycoon was not shy of calling for diversity in the energy industry, including investments in wind, solar, and natural gas. Ryan, let's start with you. Your thoughts on T. Boone Pickens. You know, uh, one of the things that I, I really like about T. Boone Pickens is that he lived a life of reinvention. I mean, this guy reinvented himself so many times. And there's this quote in the New York Times uh, where they're reporting on his death. And he said, I have always believed that it's important to show a new look periodically. And he said this in 1994, predictability can lead to failure. And so here's, here's a guy who would go from, you know, sitting it with Al Gore, you know, testifying before Congress about, uh, you know, environmental protections and investing in wind and natural gas uh, to supporting, uh, to, to attacking John Kerry in the, the 2004 Democratic presidential campaign to then later saying that he was working with <coughs> Senator Kerry. You know, he, 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 was, he was kind of a, an, a uh, you know, he just, he just led this life of reinvention. And I, I think that that's, you know, for, uh, for a lot of Oklahomans, that's an Oklahoma story. I mean, the boom and bust cycle and, you know, becoming a new person and the, the opportunity that exists with that, you know, is just really, uh, you know, some, something that, that I enjoy uh, about him. Neva? Well, no question. I mean, here's someone, as you say, a self-made billionaire, a real, uh, a person whose uh, philanthropy will be remembered not only at OSU and across the state of Oklahoma for decades to come, a real legacy. I mean, $652 million to Oklahoma State University. But when you think about it, his, his philanthropy extended far beyond that. The number that uh, that is referred to uh, oftentimes is somewhere in the neighborhood of two billion dollars. So, I mean, here is someone who um, is a real, a real. I think will always be a legend in Oklahoma. Someone that people will long remember, not only the name but who he was and what he did. And I think one of the the best. Uh, 
the best descriptions that I that I read about him, um, as as many folks were uh, sending condolences and written expressions uh, uh, on his uh, on the on the website uh, boonpickens.com, is that uh, a friend in Texas said that uh, he has the courage of a riverboat gambler and the uh, wisdom of King Solomon, and I think that <laughs> to me that was just <laughs> such an a, such a, a perfect uh, a, a perfect depiction of who T. Boone Pickens was, and I think that uh, uh, with the celebration on the campus. Uh, uh, it, it will be a special time. Uh, he, uh, as I understand, he'll be laid to rest on the campus. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think uh, he is someone that everyone should pause, reflect on his life, and thank uh, and thank God for uh, T. Boone Pickens and what he means to the state of Oklahoma. Yes, speaking of his wisdom, he once said that his IQ was tied to the, uh, the price of oil. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, his, and his Booneisms, as, as, as oh, yeah. are, have been called, are certainly something to go back and to, uh, to read over and over and over again because because, uh, you know, there, there's so many of them. I mean, the, the one you hear about uh, when you're hunting elephants, don't get don't get distracted chasing rabbits. Or uh, the one about if you're on the right side of the, the issue, just keep driving until you hear glass breaking and then don't quit. I mean, he just he, he was uh, he was one of those folks that uh, was charming and and loved by uh, virtually every person that crossed his path. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management.